join together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can sing, Blessed be your name. We know what we're singing about. Thank you that we're not like a capricious crowd shouting all kinds of things beforehand about the Lord Jesus, not really knowing what they were shouting, getting involved in mob mentality, shouting crucify him a short time later. Thank you that when we sing, we understand what we're singing, of whom we're singing, to whom we're singing. We thank you for that, and thank you for that blessed name that we can rejoice in. Thank you for your presence here with us even right now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to introduce a theme that we're going to follow during some of the Easter services, and it has to do with the word tear or torn. And this morning we're going to be looking at torn clothes. This is a message series that I'm repeating. I did this a number of years ago, and I'd like to share with you how I introduced it a long time ago. And you can tell immediately how long ago it was because I'm addressing directly. I said, my mother-in-law said to me the other night, it must be hard to come up with messages each Easter when you've been doing it so long. I explained to her and to my father-in-law that I was planning a new approach that Easter season. I doubted that anyone had ever used this particular approach before. I was zeroing in on the word tear or torn. I explained a little bit more, and my father-in-law said, I agree with you. And I always loved it when he agreed with me because he's the smartest guy I ever met. And he said, I agree with you. No one has ever done this before. I didn't know how to take that. (laughs) But no one maybe has done it before. But I, I trust that you'll understand that this is not meant to be a gimmick, a fresh look at some familiar happenings. We're going to be looking at some things that were torn that probably shouldn't have been and some things that were not torn and probably easily could have been. And I trust that as we think about this, as we hear the Easter story, maybe even some other year it'll come back to us as we think in terms of torn, we're reminded of the fact that everything is in God's control. Even the things that are torn, even the things that get ripped up, even the things that we don't understand, that it's all under God's control. All of this is part of his plan. And I think that we'll see this as we as we go through. We're going to see the uses, a number of them, of a Greek word, schizo. Um, That's a little dangerous word um, because I don't want to get personal and think somebody thinks I'm talking about somebody. I'm not talking about anybody. Um, Schizo is a word that means to split or to sever, to rend open, to divide with violence. It doesn't mean that we take something and we cut it neatly and gently. It means we take something and we just rip it apart. That's what schizo is. And we're going to see that in a number of cases during this Easter season, during the next couple of weeks. Any English words come to mind when we uh, see the word schizo? How about schizophrenia or schism? Um, When we see that, we understand schizophrenia, a, a split personality or bipolar. You get the idea of two different things that are existing side by side, or schism, a a faction or a division, something, again, that is divided. And that's the word that is used not a lot of times in the New Testament, about ten times, and in those ten times, most of them have something to do with the Easter season. And that's why we're going to be taking a look at them. Uh, Here's a sample of where we're headed 
to some degree during the Easter season by the use of these words and also just getting a, a little bit more of a feel for the word schizo. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, we're going to see there the use of the word twice. And behold, the curtain of the temple was schizoed or torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were schizoed or split. In Mark chapter 1, verse 10, this isn't usually part of the Easter story, but it says, and when he came up out of the water, that's the Lord Jesus after having been baptized, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. But you get the idea pretty clearly there that it's a tearing open. It's something that is violent. In John chapter 9, verse 20, 19, verses 20, verse 24, we're going to see it again twice. Um, here it says, So they said to one another, Let us not skidzo it or tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. They're talking about the undergarment, the cloak of the Lord Jesus underneath. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They skidzoed or divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. In John chapter 21 and verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Probably could have been, but the net was not torn in that case. And two in Acts. One is in Acts chapter 14, verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And also in Acts chapter 23, verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was, and then we see that word again, schizoed or divided. In each incident that we're going to look at, it's going to be very, very obvious that God is in complete control. Other people thought they were in control. Can you imagine somebody who's tearing something apart thinks he's in control? He's the one that, that may be doing that. Circumstances may have seemed totally out of control when things get ripped up or torn, and especially if we're not thinking that it's a good thing for that to happen. Uh, but we understand from this that God is completely in control. Everything is going to be worked out according to God's plan and even in fulfillment to his predictive prophecies. Easter's a great time to think about God's prophecies and their fulfillments because they were multitudinous. Over and over again, we see in the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life, the death, the resurrection, all of these things about the Lord Jesus that have been predicted. And so in particular this morning, we're going to be looking at something torn. We're going to be looking at torn clothes. We're going to be looking at some that should not have been torn, but others that were and others that could have been torn and weren't. We're going to be thinking in terms a little bit later on of a man by the name of Caiaphas who tore his clothes, um, thinking that by so doing, he was the one who was telling everybody else, I'm in charge, I'm in control, I will let you know how we should react to what has just been said by this person, Jesus, this imposter, he, he thought to be the Messiah. Torn clothes are not usually helpful but today is one day that I hope they will be. Can any of you think of a time when you had torn clothes and it was an embarrassment to you? You didn't plan on it. Anybody? Anybody here? Torn clothes? Okay. Not many of you. A few. 
I can remember when I was a youth pastor a few years ago, we were doing a drama over in the chapel, and I was on the platform, and I had the privilege of dying. I had, it was Julius Caesar, and I was, I was about to die, and the platform's a pretty big platform. And when I died, I tried to make it as realistic as possible. I tried to come just like this, stiff as a board, and then at the last second, catch my fall and break my, break my fall and catch myself. And I, I think I achieved that. The only problem was that in so doing, I ripped my pants from stem to stern. It just went, it was a complete rip. Uh, that was a time when I, I really wasn't thinking it was a good thing for that to have happened. One time we had an intern back in the day, and if Pastor Rich were here, Rich would remember this very, very well. Over at the playground across the street, there were swings, and the intern was swinging on the swings, and he dismounted from the swing, landed, and um, how can I say this delicately? I'll, I'll say it this way. Um, from then on, he had a nickname that I gave him, and it was called Rip. And he had a, he had a very embarrassing experience. And then, ironically, this morning... I said something to my wife before I was leaving. I said something about, I've got a hole in the back of my suit here, a little, a little white showing here. And she said, let me take a look at it. And then she said, oh, no, don't you hate those words? She said, oh, no. The, the whole thing was coming apart. So she sewed it all up back together again and then got some fabric coloring and marked it. So if you come up and look real carefully back here, I've got torn clothes here this morning. It was too late to go back. Um, but if, if you want to see that, I, I, I thought to myself as I was walking to church, how ironic that when we're talking about torn clothes that that would happen this morning. Aside from the time when we deliberately tear old clothes to make rags, most of our tears are accidental. But this morning we're going to see a high priest, Caiaphas, who deliberately tore his clothes. Let's turn there. We're going to start out in Matthew and we'll get back to John um, that is listed in the outline in a few moments. But Matthew chapter 26. I expect that you know this very well, most of these passages, but it's good for us to take another look. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered... And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. I don't know about you, but that's pretty poignant to me. He's there to see the end that is coming up. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward at last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? 
You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? How ironic that as they were saying that, they were literally fulfilling prophecy. It had been said that that's exactly what would happen to the Lord Jesus, even as they were doing some of these very things. The word for tore here, when he tore his robes, it's a different Greek word than we shared before, but it means the same thing. It's to tear asunder, to break, to rend. Why are clothes torn that way? Why did they do that? They used to tear their clothes a lot. We read about it in the scriptures. Well, sometimes it was a sign of great grief. Somebody that you loved would die and they would tear their clothes in in grief. Or maybe your army lost a battle and maybe the city was in jeopardy. Maybe the whole country was in jeopardy. They would tear their clothes in, in mourning for that. And sometimes it was in horror at hearing what was considered to be blasphemy. And that would be the case here from Caiaphas' perspective. Caiaphas was reacting to the answer that Jesus gave him. And let me refresh your, your mind on that. In verse 64, when Jesus said to him, you have said so. You've said that I'm the son of God. And yes, that's, that's rightly so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Why was this so upsetting to Caiaphas? Well, there's an older commentary written by a man by the name of Barnes, and uh, he says, here's what's happening from Caiaphas's perspective. This is why it was so upsetting to him. He says, that is, he has under oath arrogated, I'm going to define that word, um, not everybody graduated from Darby Collin High School, so you might not know that. Arrogated is to assume or claim as one's own unduly, proudly, or presumptuously. So from Caiaphas, that's what the Lord Jesus is doing. So he says, arrogated, he arrogated to himself what belongs to God. In asserting that he is the Son of God, which he did in verse 63, and therefore equal in dignity with the Father, and that he would yet sit at his right hand, he has claimed what belongs to no man, and what is therefore an invasion of the divine prerogative. If he had not been the Messiah, the charge would have been true. But the question was whether he had not given evidence that he was the Messiah, and that therefore his claims were just. This point... The only proper point of inquiry they never examined. They assumed that he was an imposter, and that point being assumed, everything like a pretension to being the Messiah was, in their view, proof that he deserved to die. The fact that he claimed to be Messiah was all they wanted to hear. They didn't want to know if there was any proof for that. They didn't look for evidence Everything stopped at that point, and they decided he's worthy of death. The Lord Jesus was never given a chance to have what we would call today due process. Everything stopped. You remember what Caiaphas said, why do we have need of any more witnesses? This is the end. Let's stop everything right here. In effect, here is what Jesus was saying, according to one of the commentators. Not only am I the Messiah and the Son of God, 
But one day you will see me glorified with my Father in heaven and returning to earth as your judge. That's why it was so upsetting to Caiaphas. That's why he tore his robes. The Son of Man, the term that Jesus used in verse 64, was a commonly acknowledged title of the Messiah. And that's the one that Jesus used as his favorite. He constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man. It was a a title of Messiah and being at the right hand of power. That power was indicating God. He was at the right hand of God. To Caiaphas, that was the end of the matter. This was blasphemy. He tore his clothes at that point. That was a very significant action for him to do that. Very manipulative as well. Because as the high priest, when he did that, everybody else knew that they were going to have to follow him or they themselves would be subject to his wrath and whatever he would do to them as a result of that. Ordinarily, most people don't know this, but ordinarily the high priest was forbidden by law to tear his garments. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 10 reads as follows. The priest who is chief among his brothers on whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He was in violation of God's law. Now, the Talmud, which was rules and regulations for the Jews, not the Bible, this is, this is something that was a Jewish document. It allowed judges who witnessed blasphemy the right to tear their clothes if later they would sew the clothes back up. You can see where the Pharisees were bred and where they come from. Uh, there's a way out. You're not allowed scripturally, as God's law said, you can't tear your clothes as high priest. But uh, we can change that a little bit. You can do that if you hear blasphemy, but you've got to promise that you're going to sew the clothes back together again after it's all done. Notice here again, there is no investigation. There's only a conclusion. When Caiaphas tore his robes, he declared Jesus guilty. He sentenced him to death at the same time. Everything ended. And you've heard me say, and you've probably heard other people say during Easter seasons, a lot of the times we have seen that they broke virtually every law in order to get Jesus speedily crucified. Law after law, they ignored, they found a way around it. Everything was in violation to the law, it would seem, at that particular time. So Caiaphas, once again, calling for immediate judgment, denying Jesus all of the safeguards that accused people were given at that time. This truly was a rush to judgment. Tearing his clothes was an extreme action. It trashed due process. Caiaphas must have thought that he had done a great thing. He must have thought that he succeeded. He thought he had the upper hand. He and the members of the Sanhedrin thought they had everything under control, including Jesus. Here's the irony. And one of the, one of the writers puts it this way. Because the ungodly members of the Sanhedrin had refused to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they had sealed their own doom to face him at the end time as their judge and executioner. 
The accused would then become the accuser, and the judges would become the judged. Everything one day would be turned around. That would be according to the plan. That's what God had in mind since before the beginning of time. But it would appear to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin that they themselves were the ones who were in control, and they were going to rid the world of this would-be Messiah who was a false claimant to be Messiah. The torn clothes, then as we look at them, can become a symbol of shredded hearts. Do you understand what I mean by that? This is a symbol now of shredded hearts. Those individuals who, because of that act of Caiaphas, were feeling, even though some of them may have been manipulated, they were feeling that we're in control. It's better to rid the world of this man and to do it right now and to do it without any sense of justice, without any due process of our law. Let's get rid of him quickly. That's a symbol of shredded hearts. Let's turn together to John chapter 19 now. John chapter 19 something that could have been torn but was not. And let's pick up in verse 17. The end of verse 16 says, So they took Jesus, and then verse 17 goes into this, And he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not schizo it. And we've also saw schizo earlier in the word divided. Let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And please don't miss these next words. So the soldiers did all these things. It was predicted, so the soldiers did these things. They didn't have a choice. They thought they did, but they had no choice in that at all. So looking again at verses 23 and 24, looking closely at what's happening here, the soldiers are there, and Jesus' garments are there for the taking, and they decide they're going to do something. But in their practical decision, they're actually pawns in God's plan that he's made for them. Because this was a prophecy back in Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. If you ever want to take some time during this Easter season and read something very interesting, read Psalm 22. It will read like an account of a Roman crucifixion, hundreds of years before the Romans invented a crucifixion. 
you will see some of the language that we're very familiar with at Easter time. In fact, Psalm 22 starts out with what we refer to often as the fourth word from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how Psalm 22 starts out. And then it continues listing many of the same things that we've just read about what happened when Jesus was here during that last week on earth. Many, many prophecies of Jesus are there in Psalm 22 and in the Old Testament in many of the prophecies. One man wrote an article called 36 Prophecies in 24 Hours. Others refer to 300, 400, even 500 prophecies of Jesus that took place during his lifetime, again, many of which took place in this last week. I want to very quickly fast forward through a few of them. And I'm not going to give the fulfillment because I assume that a group that looks as smart as you are out here knows the passages that talk about these fulfillments. Psalm 22, back to Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. Some of this we've already read this morning. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And you remember the taunts of Jesus when he was on the cross and during his trials. Again, some of which we just read. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, this is the Messiah. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. We read about that in connection with the soldiers and his garments and the, the spitting and the mocking that continued. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, even those who were supposed to be the religious leaders of that time, even by those who were supposed to know. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Here he was, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior, who came to die for all of us, and they were despising him, spitting on him, ridiculing him. Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That word judgment having to do with the legal system. This is the trials that Jesus was going through. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression, God says, of my people. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, and this is what we celebrate today. This is the anniversary, if you will, of these events. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, is he? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's what we celebrate today. It wasn't a surprise. It was prophesied back in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. If you know your Bibles, you understand that happened with Judas Iscariot. The 30 pieces of silver that Jesus was betrayed with. And that, those, that same 30 pieces of silver was thrown to the house of the potter. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on 
the cheek. That's what they were doing with Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, verse 56 kind of summarizes a whole lot of this. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. It was all according to the prearranged plan of God from the very beginning. And constantly people are stepping in as if they are the ones who are determining what the action is going to be, and they certainly are not. David Greenglass is pictured here. Does anybody remember that name, David Greenglass? I was about to say he's a very famous person in American history. He's not as famous as I thought. Um, David Greenglass was a World War II traitor. He sold atomic secrets to the Soviet Union, and then he fled to Mexico after the war. He may be more familiar, if I, if I say this, that he's the one that turned state's evidence against Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Does that name ring a bell? And, and the spy trials and all the things that were going on for selling things to the Soviets. His conspirators, and that would be as he fled to Mexico, arranged to help him by planning a meeting with the secretary of the Soviet ambassador in Mexico City. So he had to rendezvous with this individual in order to um, receive some, some safe, safety. Proper identification for both of them became vital. Greenglass was to identify himself with six prearranged signs. These instructions had been given to both the secretary, that's the Soviet secretary in Mexico, the consulate, and also to Greenglass. Uh, and these were given so that there could be no possibility of a mistake. They had to make sure that nobody else was going to be involved in this. And so here were the six signs. Once in Mexico City, Greenglass was to write a note to the secretary signing his name as I. Jackson. Secondly, after three days, he was to go to the Plaza de Colón in Mexico City. Thirdly, stand before the statue of Columbus. Fourthly, put his finger, his middle finger, in the guidebook Fifthly, when he was approached, he was to say it was a magnificent statue and that he was from Oklahoma. And sixthly, the secretary was to then give him a passport. The six prearranged signs worked. Why? With six identifying characteristics, it was impossible for the secretary not to identify Greenglass as the proper contact. And then the writer of this article concludes by asking a question. How true, then, it must be that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah if he had 456 identifying characteristics well in advance and fulfilled them all? Can you imagine that? If six can do the trick, how, many, how much will 456 do? Identifying characteristics of the Lord Jesus all of which, again, pointing to the fact it was all according to the plan established since before the beginning of time. It was well known to God. He was the one in control, even though some human beings were running around thinking they may have been in control. So I ask the question, who is in control here? The soldiers here in John 19 must have discussed their options. They reasoned a solution Here's what we want to do. We don't want to rip this thing apart. 
We don't want to do that. It would be ruined. It wouldn't do any of us any good. So let's be logical about this. What they didn't realize once again was this whole idea that the heart, it says in, in Proverbs 16:9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's always in control, even when it looks like things are out of control. And do you know it works the same way in our lives as it did back then, as it has always? We think of God's plan sometimes for the triumphal entry. You know, that plan hit a few snags along the way, didn't it? The triumphal entry. We call it the triumphal entry. It was anything but that. It was a fickle crowd. It was a fickle crowd who very easily were swayed in order to yell, crucify him later on, instead of to be shouting hosannas at him. And we think, well, that that just went completely wrong. Well, no, it didn't go completely wrong. It was according to plan. The soldiers made a pragmatic decision. They thought it was their call. It was not. Usually the clothing of a crucified man became the property of the executioners. And that's why as they were reasoning all of this, they said, let us not tear it. Let us not tear it. Could have been torn, but they decided, no, we're not going to tear this. It was one of their perks to be able to get the property of the one who was being executed. Jesus' simple wardrobe consisted probably of these five items, a turban or headdress of some kind, an outer robe, a sash or girdle, sandals, and a fairly long tunic woven in one piece that was an undergarment. That was the last piece that was to be saved. And so the four soldiers divided four of the pieces of clothing among themselves. Each one of them got one of those first four. But for the fifth one, they cast lots, and one of them would then get that. And verse 24 makes it clear why this happened. Isn't it interesting that verse 24 concludes with the sentence, so the soldiers did these things. They did it because it was prophesied. That's what comes immediately before this expression. So the soldiers did these things. Or in the NIV, so this is what the soldiers did. But it wasn't up to them what happened to Jesus' garments. They only thought they were in control. Let's draw a couple of conclusions. There's one, really just one. One simple lesson. Two separate incidents. Someone tore his robe and thought he was in control of the destiny of the Son of Man. And he wasn't. Some others didn't tear the garment of the Lord Jesus. They thought they were in control. They weren't. Tearing and not tearing. It's all in God's hands. Later on in John chapter 19 and verse 30, we read that Jesus gave up his spirit. There were those who thought they killed him. They didn't kill him. He gave up his spirit. What he did, he did voluntarily for each one of us. That's one of the things that makes Easter so great. The Lord Jesus did what he did, knowing full well what they were going to do, but it was all part of his plan. He voluntarily gave his life for you. He voluntarily gave his life for me. He was not a victim. 
No one else had the upper hand, not Satan, not Pilate, not Caiaphas, not the Sanhedrin, not the Roman soldiers, no one but himself. That's why at this time of year we sing songs like, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? What wondrous love that is. Or from O sacred head now wounded, What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? And that's why we're able to praise him during this time. Because knowing what he was going to go through from before the beginning of time, he set his face, it tells us, as a flint toward Jerusalem. He knew what was coming. It was not going to be pleasant. Don't think that because he was Jesus that this was a picnic. This was the worst thing imaginable, not just the physical death. A lot of people have died, some of them horrible deaths, but the Lord Jesus died taking all of our sin on himself. And when his father said, from those terrible words, or when Jesus indicated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, it was awful. And that's what makes the love, the mercy, and the grace so great. We're going to hear more about it tonight. We're going to hear more about it in song. We'll hear a lot about grace and mercy and about the love of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray and thank him together for it now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we don't have the language to borrow to thank you. As the song calls you the dearest friend, your dying sorrow, your pity without end. What wondrous love is this that caused you to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? But thank you for it. And thank you that each one of us can in our very hearts at this very moment express to you our gratitude. And then we can show the sincerity of that gratitude by the lives we live for you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.